This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Ontario, as we reported yesterday, is sitting on $6.4 billion in unspent emergency COVID-19 funding that it received from the federal government. It's one of six provinces that have left billions on the table, even though the money is earmarked. Yesterday, I asked former Ontario Finance Minister Charles Sousa, a regular contributor here on Fight Back, why they'd be doing that. They have to determine if they want to make their deficit look better uh, next year or do they use this to fight the cause. And I don't think they're going to have much choice. And uh, I suspect that if they're going to try to pad the number in order to make their deficit look better, that's they're being called out on it right now. Well, the study also shows that the overwhelming majority of pandemic aid is coming from Ottawa, which is kicking in 94% versus 6% from Queen's Park. That study is from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And senior economist David McDonald joins me now. Welcome, David. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So um, here's one of the things I still have trouble wrapping my head around. If this money is earmarked, how can provinces like Ontario just stash it away and, and wait to see if they can use it for something else? Well, it's not unusual for budgets to have unallocated funds like this, contingency funds or, or other areas where they haven't allocated the money. In some ways, it's a bit of a hedge that uh, they might need the money, but they might not need the money. In the case where they need the money, it's not going to change the underlying deficit because it's already kind of baked in. But if they don't need the money at the end of the year, all of a sudden the deficit's a bit smaller because they didn't use the money. Um, in this case, uh, there's, there's clear need for the money. Um, and so, you know, right now the province has uh, $2.4 billion in uh, unallocated funds this year, and then they're going to add another $4 billion which is how you get to the $6.4 billion, um, on April 1st in the new fiscal year. So this is a lot of money that hasn't been allocated to anything in particular. Now, this isn't unspent federal money. This is just something that the provinces decided they're going to do on their own. Several other provinces have done it, but nothing like the scale in Ontario. You know, Quebec, for instance, has a $300 million uh, uh, unallocated fund whereas Ontario's is $6.4 billion. So a huge difference, even though, you know, the, the yeah, but provinces are similar sized. It's the earmarking that, I mean, I, I, sorry if I'm being a bit thick, but this comes up with long-term care as well. Funds are earmarked. You get the money from Ottawa, and Ottawa says this, this money has to be spent for topping up wages for frontline workers, let's say. Uh, and if it's not spent for that purpose, it has to be returned. So how do they, how is it hang on to in that way and maybe applied against the deficit? Yeah, in terms of the transfers from the federal government, um, you know, Ottawa has, or Ontario rather, has has, has spent those uh, and has largely accessed the full value and spent them in, in the areas where they should have been spent uh, within reason. Um, you know, these unallocated funds, the $6.4 billion, this doesn't, this doesn't connect directly to federal money. This is purely a creation of the provincial government. They decided to create the $6.4 billion fund um, and sit on it. Um, so it, it's counting, you know, it's counted in the deficit, um, and it's a hedge. So if, uh, you know, they don't need the full $6.4 billion um, by the end of the next fiscal year, then the deficit's lower by $6.4 billion, and, and Bob's your uncle. Um, now, uh, you know, that's a, that's a political calculation as to whether you, you want to spend this money on on programs. Um, but there's a real need on the ground. I mean, the schools are closed. We can't go out of our homes. Uh, you know, we, I mean, there's, there's a real need here. And so it is a bit concerning that so much money is wrapped up in these funds. I mean, part of the goal of this report is to highlight, look, there's a lot of money that the government could deploy, the, the provincial government could deploy um, without changing the underlying deficit figures. Uh, it doesn't increase the deficit at all. Um, and that they should deploy it because there's a real need. Uh, in Ontario, as, as there are in other provinces, to really combat the second wave of the virus. Uh, but if it's if it's not direct aid, then how is it being characterized as COVID nineteen funding? 
it's in an unallocated, well, it's, it's spread across three unallocated funds. Um, one is a health COVID fund, one is a jobs and people fund, um, and the third one is called the pandemic fund. So they have different names. Um, and, and so they're in the budget under those names with, you know, a total of $6.4 billion if you add them up over, over the next two years. Um, it's just that it's not for program yet. So it's not for, you know, buying PPE and sending it out to businesses. It's not for, uh, you know, better testing in long-term care homes. It's not for anything in particular, but it is a budget line. And so that's the situation that, that, uh, that Ontario is living with right now. Uh, according to a spokesman for the Ontario Finance Minister, Peter Bethlehem Falvey, uh, they say any suggestion that the government is not spending funds to keep Ontarians healthy and safe is categorically false. What do you say to that? I mean, it's, it's, in, it's in the budget. It's in budget 2020, November 5th. It's in budget uh, table 310, if you want to look it up. Uh, you know, it's pretty clear that they have these contingency funds um, that aren't allocated. Uh, now, there are other provinces, as I said, that also have unallocated contingency funds, but they're just not nearly as large. And so, um, you know, there's $2.4 billion as of December 31st on, on the books, and they're going to add another $4 billion to that on April 1st in the new fiscal year. Um, now, maybe they have plans to spend that money, um, and they just don't – they haven't announced them yet. Maybe they want to – you know, maybe they want to announce them in the coming weeks and months. Um, that's certainly possible. Um, and I hope that they do. I mean, that is part of the point of this is to say, look, you know, there is some space in the budget here. Let's use it. Um, and so I, I, it's not that, you know, they don't necessarily have plans. They just want to publish plans. So hopefully they do have plans and they're going to, you know, tell us what those plans are. But as of December 31st, they, they hadn't told us what those plans are. And it's a fair amount of money. Okay. And it, I mean, I just, I was talking to a former finance minister yesterday and, uh, you know, the, the size of the deficit is going to be so ginormous that, you know, even if you're able to redu- reduce it by a couple of billion, it's, it's going to be like a drop in the bucket. Yes. Uh, you know, the, the, the provincial deficits and the federal deficit are going to be huge in the, in the 20, in the fiscal year we're in that ends at the end of March. Um, and so, I mean, this, the contingency fund in Ontario is particularly large, but the deficit is also large in Ontario. Um, you know that's not that's not unusual. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure what the political calculation is here. Um, clearly, they're they're building in room to the budget to spend on on COVID measures if they need to. I mean, the argument is that they they need to. Like they're you know it's like you, know, you got a rainy day fund, but there's a hurricane outside. Let's spend the rainy day fund. Um, and that's part of what I think the goal of this report is. I mean, more broadly speaking, looking at the measures that Ontario has put into place, excluding these un- unallocated funds, the province is certainly spending money, as you, as you said. I mean, most of the money being spent in Ontario is actually federal money. Um, but if we take a look at Ontario vis-a-vis other big provinces, um, Ontario is spending about 1% of its GDP or the size of its economy on COVID-19 measures. A similar, uh, pretty similar actually to Alberta, spending about 1% of GDP. Um, Quebec is spending 1.5% of GDP, so 50% more um, than Ontario. And then you've got BC that's spending 3% of GDP, in essence, three times more than what Ontario is spending on, on COVID-19 measures out of, out of their own pockets. So even excluding these unallocated funds, um, Ontario and Alberta only spending about a third of what uh, BC is spending on, on COVID-19 measures. So other provinces are doing a fair amount more once you adjust for the size of their economy. So uh, it would be pretty easy uh, to draw a straight line between that and ideology. I mean, those are two conservative governments versus NBC and NDP government and Francois Legault in Quebec. Yeah, I, that's certainly, I mean, that's certainly part of the picture. I mean, these are government priorities playing out. Um, I mean, the other thing that's worth pointing out is that the, the, the per capita support received by Ontario from the federal government is actually particularly high. So Ontario is one of the big beneficiaries of, of federal support. They're not the biggest. Um, that's Alberta. Alberta's receiving more per person uh, in federal dollars than any other province. Um, but Ontario second. And so, um, you know, these both of these provinces uh, aren't spending a tremendous amount. They're spending more than some of the smaller provinces, like in the Maritimes on, on COVID measures. Uh, but they're that they're big beneficiaries of federal money, um, receiving more in, in large part because more of their companies applied for um, uh, the wage subsidy in Ontario and the uh, the SIBA, the uh, forgive, Forgivable Loan Program for small and medium-sized businesses. Uh, let me ask you this. 
Do you think that the federal government is stringent enough in the requirements, the earmarking when it gives money? To the provinces, or does it does it leave it to them? And I, I've I, on other files like long term care, uh, people say, "Well, you, you know, the the earmarks are there, but there's no enforcement." Uh, what's your take on that? In terms of this set of transfers and programs, the requirements were fairly vague, and so, I mean, it's not hard to spend money in a pandemic um, on contact tracing, testing, uh, PPE healthcare, long-term care. It's not, that's not a difficult proposition. And it wasn't terribly stringent. Um, now, you know, in some regards, I don't think that's a problem. I mean, it, you know, they, they were directed at certain areas. And I mean, most of the provinces spent roughly in those areas. Um, they didn't necessarily access the full amount of money. They could have, but, um, you know, hopefully that'll change in the future. The one area I think that really stands out is municipal sports. Um, and the, a majority of the provinces, six out of 10 provinces, um, did not match federal money for municipal operating and transit budgets. Ontario did, and so this doesn't apply to Ontario. Um, but uh, six out of ten provinces didn't didn't cost match. They were supposed to. That was in the safe restart agreements, but they didn't. They took the federal money and they distributed the federal money, but didn't match it with their own. And so I think that that uh, potentially sets a, a dangerous precedent uh, if you're allowing provinces to bypass cost matching. Uh, because the story isn't over. I mean, you know, there's 70 to $100 billion in additional money that's going to be built into the spring federal budget that's going to come out in a couple months. Um, and there, I think there's going to be a big push on things like infrastructure, things like long-term care standards, uh, things like affordable child care. And I, I do think that the federal government will look for, for cost matching there. And I wonder whether they'll allow the, 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 the provinces to thumb their nose at, uh, at, at um, uh, cost-matching agreements in this next round of funding. Well, that aside, my question about this money that is uh, unallocated, I mean, presumably the federal, federal government could say, we're giving you this money and you've got to spend it by the end of fiscal. Uh, is, is that a, a feasible thing? Well, this is purely, this is, this is, this um, unallocated fund is purely Ontario-based. So the, the feds, it, this isn't unspent federal money per se. Um, this is just the province deciding that they're going to create their own fund and they're not going to spend the full value of it or they haven't published the plans for how they plan to spend the full value of it at this point. So it's not necessarily something that the feds could uh, could come in and sort of push Ontario around on. Um, but certainly, I mean, as as new programs roll out, it's next 70 to $100 billion in, in funding, you know, Ontario might have looked at the other provinces and said, hey, look, these folks aren't matching municipal transfers. Maybe next time around, we're not going to match, you know, long-term care transfers or, or transfers for affordable child care or infrastructure spending. Um, and I, so I think that that's potentially one of the dangers of this next round of stimulus spending. What would you like to leave us with? Well, I mean, I think that this is really very much a story in progress that, uh, you know, several unallocated funds exist by province. Several provinces haven't done appropriate cost matching. Several provinces haven't fully spent what they've received from the federal government or fully applied for the amount of money that they, they could receive. This has been almost entirely a federal affair in terms of the spending and where the money is ultimately coming from. Um, and there's a lot more money to come. And so this, I hope, points out that the provinces could certainly be doing more in terms of uh, accessing basically free federal money um, and also committing more of their own money as we move into hopefully a recovery effort as, as vaccine rollouts start in the spring and summer. Okay, thank you so much, David McDonald. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Okay, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about those travel restrictions that are being hinted at, that are being demanded by some of the provincial premiers. And I want to know what you think. Is that the right way to go? What kind of restrictions would you like to see? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740, and we will be right back with that. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Some provincial premiers, including Doug Ford, are demanding tighter travel restrictions now that the more 
serious variants are circulating. The prime minister has said they are coming, though there's nothing yet. Quebec Premier Francois Legault wants all non-essential travel banned. Ford wants mandatory testing on arrival and a temporary ban on direct flights from countries where the variant has been found. The Manitoba Premier is imposing mandatory 14-day quarantine on out-of-province visitors. And I have even heard calls for roadblocks here in the province to prevent people from the Barry area where they're having that terrible outbreak of the new variant from coming to the GTA. So what makes sense from a health point of view and what will the economic impact be? Want to hear from you. What do you think should happen or not happen? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now I'm joined by Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network, and Dr. Marion Joppe, professor at Guelph University School of Hospitality, Food and Tourism Management. Hello and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, hello. Okay, uh, let's start with Dr. Vaisman. Uh, is it too late? Is, 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 is this still a sensible thing to do, or uh, is it too late? I think when you're looking at these travel restrictions, you have to temper your expectations. So is it too late to completely uh, avoid this, these variants from entering Canada? The answer is yes. We've already seen it here in Ontario and other places. But is can we expect at least to reduce or slow down the transmission of the variant? Then probably we can. So as long as we, we understand what the goal here is, it's not to eliminate or entirely prevent the transmission. It's simply to slow it down so that hospitals and the medical facilities have time to adjust and for the vaccinations to take hold across the country. Dr. Joppe, uh the airline industry is already very, very hard hit. How would an additional restriction or ban uh, affect it? Well, it would be even more devastating. We saw um, that even with the announcement of um, a COVID test prior to boarding, the the cancellations uh, just poured into the airlines. What we really need to ask ourselves, though, is... Why are we allowing this to keep dragging on? I mean, we're, we're close to a year now that, that we're dealing with this, and we've never gotten serious about it. You look at other countries like Australia and New Zealand that really took draconian measures very quickly, and within the country, at least, people are pretty much back to normal. Hmm. Uh- Dr. Vaisman, you know, when, when we see numbers of the infections brought in from travel, they look low. They're single digits. So is that really the place to concentrate? I, I know that, you know, to be honest, when I see Doug Ford at the airport, I figure he's trying to distract me from something else. Yeah, so there's two reasons. There's two things to think about when we're talking about travel restrictions. One is that is it importing a significant number of our cases? Is that why we peaked where we were and why we had thousands? The answer is no, it's, that's not why we had all that peaking and all the number of cases we had post-Christmas. But the second issue is, does it bring in variants that are potentially more transmissible to the population? And probably that is the case, that uh, these variants coming in from Brazil or UK or South Africa or elsewhere are being imported. So no, it doesn't lead to a huge contribution in numbers, but on the other hand, it may in the future if these variants become more prevalent. Well, we, we've got, uh, what, 100 people confirmed infected with the, the variant in Muskoka, and it all started with one person at the Roberta Place nursing home, which is experiencing just something awful. Yeah, yeah, so that's exactly the problem, is that based on data from outside of Canada, it shows that these variants are very transmissible, more so than what we've seen in Canada. And so we are uh, looking at these situations in nursing homes or elsewhere where clusters of cases are arising and trying to determine whether those are due to these variants. And getting getting control of them has seems to be a lot more challenging than before. Okay. And uh, Dr. Jaffe, uh, is there a significant difference in, say, 
a short and very stringent travel ban, all non-essential travel, whatever that means, uh, as opposed to like drip, 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 uh, you know, one, one measure and then another measure and none of it being really strict. Well, yeah, and, and it's kind of the issue right now. Officially, we have some of the strictest um, measures in place in the world when it comes to, to travel. But the reality is uh, that, that people don't respect the quarantine, for one. Uh, we hear it all the time that, that people leave early. Secondly, they can travel within Canada uh, even when they come from abroad because it's their end destination where they have to quarantine. So, you know, they're, they're transferring flights, and, and if they're asymptomatic, they could be infecting people along that entire trajectory, not just the one flight. And thirdly, they're allowed to quarantine, uh, you know, at, at home in, in their residence where there can be other family members. Uh, and, you know, the reality is they're not going to be completely isolated. Uh, other countries like Australia, they impose the quarantine in a hotel, uh, and it's the military that actually guards those hotels to make sure that people uh, respect the two weeks of, of quarantine. And people are expected to pay for that out of pocket, and it's not the taxpayer that's, that's paying for it. So there are ways of uh, actually making sure that the measures we have in place are effective, because right now, they're not very strict. Well, yeah, and that's what a lot of people are advocating for, um, making people quarantine in, in government-designated hotels and paying for it. Let's take a call from Bruce in Guelph. Hi, Bruce. Yeah, hello, Libby. I think this is very simple. Um, ban international travel completely right now. Um, if people are away, give them a week, and if they come back, yes, that 14-day quarantine in a hotel, you take them in a bus right from the airport. You don't even give them their luggage. You put the luggage in another bus and take it directly to the airport. Or sorry, to the hotel. They have to pay for food. They have to pay for lodging. They have to pay for everything. I mean, this is so ridiculous. They keep saying, I bet 2%. I don't believe that, Libby. I'm sorry, but I think it's a lot higher than that. It has to be the way it's spreading. And this variant that is here, they keep saying it's spreading faster. But they keep saying also that they don't know if it's, if it's going to be more contagious, not more contagious, uh, more deadly. So you get that into a nursing home, which you uh, you know you said there at the beginning, at that one in Barrie, and it's just going through there like wildfire, and it's probably killing more people than the other one. It's, it's, it, I think it's very simple. Ban it. That's it. End of story. Okay, Bruce, thanks for that. Thank you. Okay, people, uh, let me give the numbers out again. If you have something to say, maybe you agree with Bruce, bring the hammer down. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Looking for your take on what we should do in terms of travel restriction. And Dr. Vaisman, uh, two questions. So first of all, is that kind of strict quarantine, would that be a significant reduction, a small reduction? Do you have any sense of it? Uh, I don't have a specific answer about that. But in general, what we can say is that it, if we were to do a very strict quarantine, again, it won't make a big difference in the overall cases, but it will potentially slow down dramatically the spread of variants. And that's, that's where we have to look carefully of where they are in the province. If uh, the horse has left the barn already and we have variants already spread out, then doing these strict travel restrictions aren't going to add much value. If at this moment there's very few cases, and that's what we believe that, that to be the case, then there will be a much greater benefit from making strict quarantine. In any event, it makes sense to have people adhere to the quarantine to do what you can to try to maintain that, because otherwise it's you know you're just it's just pointless kind of hand waving that you're doing. It makes sense to have to to try to do as much as you can to to uh, maintain that. What about this idea of roadblocks to prevent people from Muskoka and Barry from coming to the GTA? Yeah, I mean it's. On paper, it may look like the cases may only be there right now, but chances are the variant has already made its way through Canada, through the province. So you, you wonder, you know, there's no international travel going directly into Muskoka, so it must have been somebody who uh, transmitted the virus somewhere else from the province. So physical roadblocks around that area isn't going to make, it's likely, uh, it's likely too late for that kind of measure to be effective. It's likely going to be found in other places already. But uh, 
I mean, so it's a, are you saying that it's not going to do any good if we prevent people from there? Right. That, that's targeting an intervention specifically with a roadblock, specifically in that area, likely isn't going to have a major difference. Um, I think one of the most important things you can do in that area is do good contact tracing and communicate with people and ensure quarantining and isolation and education is happening rather than setting up a physical roadblock. Okay, and I have a question that's perhaps a touch off topic. So at the nursing home, all but two patients were infected. Is is anybody studying those two who were not infected? Wouldn't that be a good thing to look at? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. I can't speak specifically to that nursing home, whether they are investigating. But uh, when you have those scenarios, you, you do wonder about why it happens. But I think generally when you have uh, numerous cases, it's just simply sometimes luck about who gets infected and who doesn't when there's such a high rate of attack. Um, but yeah, perhaps they are looking at those two specific patients or in other settings as well, where other people have been infected and they haven't. Okay, I hope they are. Let's take a call from Carol in Kingston. Hi, Carol. Hi, thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. I just wanted to say I have experience with Singapore. I sent my granddaughter home to Singapore December the 5th. So she has to have that to land, has to be negative. And when they land, they take the whole plane load by bus to the government ordered quarantine hotel, you have to pay for it yourself, you're there 14 days. So about two days before the end of her quarantine, two people who were negative tested positive. So they moved all of them immediately to a new hotel, and on the day she was to leave, my daughter went to pick her up at noon, she came down, they came and took her back because someone else had tested positive. So she had to have another test. Wow. Interesting. And and guess how many times your key card works in the door? No idea. One. Ah. You get to go in. And you have to put an app on your phone. So you're taking your temperature three times a day. They are monitoring you by video and in person by phone calls several times a day. So you, you're, they're making sure you are where you are and you did not go out. And you better be there because if not, they're going to send the police to get you. Well, you know and what? they have zero cases and the only cases they're seeing are cases that are coming in on the planes and they're stopping it in their tracks. Okay, well, you know what, Carol? Thanks for your call. Uh, they don't fool around in Singapore. You can get into serious trouble for littering there. And, oh, I know uh, that. Go yeah. there every year for a month. Yeah, and uh, the the other part of it is a, a different culture where people will accept um, that kind of thing. Uh, but they have a very uh, clean and uh, effective uh, state there, city-state. Well, yeah, they can go out to eat dinner now. They could go to a movie. They could go shopping. They can have eight people over. I mean, it was hard, but they've contained it. Okay, and we're just dilly-dallying around, in my opinion. Okay, Carol, thanks for that. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, dilly-dallying indeed. Uh, Professor Joppa, uh-huh. would, would you say the holdup in imposing this, do you think there is some kind of behind-the-scenes talk of compensation, or, or what do you think the holdup would be? To hold up with what? For tra- more travel restrictions. Well, it's it's because there are the, the economic interests, right? And uh, businesses are starting to fail in, in, in many places, and the airlines are particularly hard hit. Um, and at the same time, the country is such a huge place. We need the airlines um, to actually connect all of the, the communities, so we can't allow the airlines to fail. So it, it's one of those where you say, well, the government does not want to provide uh, millions, if not billions, in support to airlines, so how do they survive? Because they're, they're bleeding money like crazy. One of the things the Prime Minister said was that, well, you know, these planes that carry passengers, now they also carry cargo that we need. Is that a, a reasonable argument? 
It is very much so. I mean, we we usually don't understand how much cargo comes in by air and by passenger planes. Um, we are very reliant with our supply chain, not just on the trucks coming in from the states, but also the the airlines themselves. Okay, and uh, Dr. Vaisman, uh, in general, uh, you're saying that it's basically too late to stop it, but it it might slow the spread. Um, So when balancing that, I mean, it's not your job to balance it with the economics, but uh, does it make sense to do these half measures or are they completely useless? I wouldn't say they're completely useless, but things like strengthening the quarantine, it would be very helpful um, targeting the restrictions to areas where there's high likelihood of of the variant coming in from. Um, the testing also may may also beef things up. So I wouldn't say that all these things are futile. Uh, slowing things down does have a huge value when you think about the capacity of the healthcare system to accommodate, and also when you think about the timeline for vaccination. So even if it can't 100% eliminate the variant from entering Canada, if you can do a lot to re- reduce it, that goes a long way. Uh, the the Ontario government started this pilot project excuse me, testing people voluntarily when they land. You know, do we actually even have enough tests to do the kind of testing that Carol was talking about that her granddaughter underwent uh, in Singapore? I think we we probably do have the capacity to do that, especially if we have a targeted approach when we think about certain countries where it's high yield and will have uh, benefit the other thing to keep in mind is that if people, if quarantining is done very well, if people are doing an excellent job with their quarantining or if it's imposed upon them, then the testing is of less value because those individuals will remain quarantined for 14 days regardless of whether they have a negative test or not. So if, you, if we don't have complete quarantine, then the testing adds more value. And especially if we target it, we do have the capacity here in Ontario to do that. And what do you think the use of this pilot project, given that it's uh, voluntary, what do you make of that? Yeah, it's an interesting question because obviously there's a selection bias there. People who volunteer may be the ones who have less risky exposures, less risky activity in wherever they were outside of Canada. And so the the positivity we saw about 2.5% or so may be a falsely low value given that selection bias. But it is a, a place to start and... Um, more importantly, the testing of variants among the travelers is the more important piece of information. So of the positives, testing them for the variants is the more important piece of information. And do we have any indication of what that is? Well, we do. As you, you mentioned earlier, there was the variant testing is now done on a targeted basis over uh, for certain people who have certain high-risk features in their history, such as a certain travel history or exposure history or coming up with a cluster that's unexplained. And as uh, everyone knows, there have been... Uh, many cases now identified in Ontario. I think were, there was the, the ones associated with the long-term care, but even outside of that, there was more than 40, I think, already found in other places across the province associated with travel. Okay, let's take a call from Robert in Cambridge. Hi, Robert. Good afternoon. My question is, um, we bought a motorhome, and we wanted to go across the border, and we, were, we uh, can't go across the border so uh, what we do is, uh, do we come home and then drive down to Toronto Airport and fly down to Florida? I just don't understand. It's still the same. It's uh, Canadian border security. We're faced to them on the border, Why? and we are faced with them at the airport. I, I don't think it's fair that, uh, sure, maybe the airports get closed down. It's going to cost them a lot of money, but that's the way it is. So uh, what are you saying? Should they uh, ban the air, air travel as well? It is, it, you're right. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not hugely uh, easy to explain why this and not that. I'm just saying shut the airport down. Okay. And uh, I hope we get to the point, Robert, where you can drive your RV wherever you like. Yeah. We went and bought it last March, and that's $120,000. Um, it only cost me about maybe a few hundred dollars to fly down to Florida. I don't know. Maybe I'm the one that's stupid. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we will get through this. Thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, Dr. Joppa, what would you like to leave us with? 
Well, I think, like I said, we we have to get serious about actually making sure that people that are supposed to quarantine are quarantining um, and, and that it's not this half-hearted effort. Uh, and, and we need to quarantine them as soon as they enter the country and not let them travel across the country and, and uh, keep spreading it. I mean, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of logic behind some of the implementation of uh, the policies we've put in place. Okay, and Dr. Weissman, last word to you. Yeah, I think I agree with those comments, but I just also added that there, although there's a lot of focus on the variants and what they mean, an important thing to realize is that in the UK, where they were able to get control of transmission using the standard approaches we've been using all this time. So although the transmission risk is higher, we can still use vaccination and contact tracing and testing, all the things we know about, all the proper PPUs, all those things to get control of things. So it is unfortunate that we have the variants here in Canada, but we do know how to take care of it. Okay. Well, that's it for this segment. Thank you so much, Dr. Alon Vaisman and Dr. Marion Joppa. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, there's a new group advocating for long-term care residents. It's called Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care. We'll talk about what they are doing when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We've been telling you about CARP's long-term care campaign for months now, but there is a new advocacy effort to end the devastation in long-term care, this time from doctors. Uh, This week, more than 300 doctors and advocates have banded together under the banner Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care and signed a letter calling on the Ford government to act now to address the deadly COVID-19 outbreaks at long-term care homes across the province. They are calling it a humanitarian crisis, which violates the human rights of nursing home residents. So first, let me give you the numbers. If you have something to say about that, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And with me now to tell us more, two of the founding members, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, a professor at Ontario Tech University who specializes in family caregiving, and Dr. Amit Arya, a palliative care physician and board member of Canadian Palliative Care Physicians and the Ontario Health Coalition. Thank you and welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Let us begin with Dr. Arya. What made you decide to take this move? Well, to be very honest with you, Libby, we're just also frustrated. And I, I would honestly say frustrated is a bit of an understatement because for months, I mean, really since the second, you know, since the first wave, but especially now that we're in the second wave, we've been just sort of watching and, you know, sort of seeing these appalling situations in our long-term care homes where people are not just dying of COVID-19, but people are dying of hunger and dehydration. There's lack of basic care, lack of communication with families. Um, and, you know, this is all in a situation where the virus is not new. I mean, we now know that Canada, I mean, I think it was just a couple of days ago, uh, last year in 2020, that we had the very first case of COVID-19. So the same factors that were in evidence and led to the spread of COVID-19 in long-term care in wave one are still in evidence today. And our government's sort of response to this, even though they had all summer to act, really pales in comparison to other provinces. So we've just brought this, brought a lot of the frustration that we're hearing and a lot of the, you know, the grief and the exasperation together in this new movement, Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care. And I wanted to add that actually we now have over 800 people who have signed our open letter. 800 doctors. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. That's in one day. In yeah. one day. Congratulations. That's good work. The, by the way, the CARP campaign, which has been underway for a while, now has over 6,000 signatories. Dr. Stamatopoulos, you have come out with a specific list of things. Some of them are long-term, but what in the short term do you want this government to do right now? Well, I don't think there's any calls for confusion here. Call in the military. We have, you know, 
our prime ministers offered these healthcare teams, which are critical for stabilizing some of the worst hit homes. And we have an increasing number of homes with over a hundred infected residents and staff. And these homes are in crisis right now, just trying to get through by the skin of their teeth. There is no question that they would help as a crisis response system. But more than that, we need to make sure we're immediately hiring more nurses and more PSWs because understaffing was well predicted to have been the, the most dangerous absence or, you know, inaction by this government in terms of engaging in a sec- not engaging in a sector-wide staffing blitz. And, and I would say we need to make sure that we're properly overseeing these homes. We need to make sure we have infection prevention and control individuals tasked to each home, something Quebec has been doing for months that can help prevent the very real and widespread preventable error that we are seeing every single day. It's a new story at a different home. Sunnycrest, Tender Care, St. George, Roberta Place, widespread preventable negligence that should never have happened that now has led to mass casualty offense. And what do we get from our government? Nothing. Well, it's it's interesting. You know, we've been talking about all these things uh, for months. Uh, Dr. Arya, uh, so on the note of the military coming in, so uh, just in in the most recent, you know, the most recent aspect of this, uh, Doug Ford said the prime minister offered it. His first reaction was, I never turned down any offer to help. I'll look at it. As uh, recently as yesterday, the health minister said, we don't need it because these homes now have agreements with hospitals and the hospitals are looking after it. What do you say to that? Oh, I have a lot of things to say about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, firstly, I mean, I would add that, I mean, what has been a consistent theme uh, throughout uh, this pandemic, and especially now with these issues in the second wave, has been a complete lack of honesty and transparency from long-term care homes, where early on in an outbreak, or even well into an outbreak, actually, where there may be even 50 cases or more, we hear from the homes administration that, well, everything is well, we're doing all we can to support the residents, and this, these statements are actually backed up by, by, you know, by the Minister of Health and the government. But yet, a few days later, it's a family caregiver who has to come out and sort of talk to the media, or it's a frontline health worker who has to post on social media for, you know, you know, for people to actually realize what's even happening in these long-term care homes. And it's no secret, I mean, I completely agree with my colleague, Dr. Stamatopoulos, that staffing levels have just collapsed across the long-term care sector. And in addition, in homes where they're in a crisis with COVID-19 and they have a large number of infected residents, you know, the paradox that happens is that there's also a large number of staff that are infected too and are at home sick and isolating. And that's the opposite of what you need. You need more staff on the ground when people are sicker with a virus like COVID-19. The third point that I would add is that at this point in the second wave, hospitals themselves are overwhelmed. They're struggling to provide staff to support these nursing homes on a regular basis, given that the care needs of the residents are, are so high. So, I mean, we cannot just be counting on hospitals. And at the same time, we can't just be leaving residents neglected and abandoned without appropriate care. So this is, uh, you know, exactly as Dr. Stamatopoulos said, a mass casualty event. And if there was a plane crash or any other type of disaster that happened, we wouldn't hesitate. We would call the ambulance. We would call the military. It wouldn't matter. So I don't understand why our government is not acting now. And yeah, absolutely. In these situations, they should be calling in the military. Uh, They shouldn't waste any time. I want to... uh get into this business about calling in the military. Uh, So again, they're saying, uh, you know, so first of all, in terms of these uh, management agreement with the hospitals, even people who represent for-profit long-term care have said that when a home gets into crisis, it takes too long because the process for getting those agreements done are, are very bureaucratic. So that's a criticism. They need help. They say we want a hospital to manage us, but it takes a while to get those agreements done. And I'm wondering, is there anything in those agreements that you know about that would prevent them from calling in the military? Because like you, I don't understand what the hesitation is. And I mean, embarrassment, but, but you know, I'm, they should be embarrassed already. Anybody yeah. know about those agreements? Well, yeah, there's nothing so, that says that the military ahead, can't go in that I'm aware of. Do you know that, uh, Dr. Arya? 
No, no, not at no. all. Not at all. I'm not aware of any sort of uh, concern with this. And I'm not sure as to why. Like, I can give an example for, you know, I know that in British Columbia, which has had a completely different response to the pandemic from, from day one in long-term care homes, which we're glad to speak about. I mean, they have uh, teams that are community-based teams, often with public health, that will just show up at the doorstep of a long-term care home at the very beginning of an outbreak. Not when there's already 50 or 100 cases. They'll show up at the very beginning and they'll say, listen, we're here to help you. We're going to help you with infection control practices. We're going to help you with making sure that you're providing decent care. And that's not happening here. Well, that's what the hospitals are supposed to be doing. And I know that in Toronto, for instance, even in the summer, there were teams from University Health Network that were going into long-term care. And I think that we've seen with some of those homes, uh, they haven't had the worst of it. But uh, again, as uh, one of the people I was talking to a couple of weeks ago said, when there's a crisis now, it takes some time. Yeah, and it shouldn't. I mean, that's failure. And this is why people like me and Dr. Aria and another uh, geriatrician, Dr. Amina Jabaro, we wrote about this in the summer. One of the things that we called about warning this government as a a preventative, preactive, proactive measure was to indicate in public, real time, the staffing levels at each home so that we, people who are actually paying attention, unlike our Minister of Long-Term Care, could detect when staffing collapses begin. And that way we could proactively send in aid. The long-term care commissioners also called for a, a similar form of proactive and in real time um, provision of the staffing levels at each home. That would have been a critical safeguard to getting proactive aid, yet our government refused to heed the advice. So, I mean, give me a break. At this point, they are actively working towards the mortality that we are seeing by failing to heed the advice of experts. There were many things we could have done to protect these seniors and the workers. They weren't done. That's the reality. Dr. Arya, at this point, uh, do you th- is, it, is it too late or is there anything that can be done now, uh, say, like calling in the military that, that can, uh, you know, get things under control? Well, to be very honest with you, it's, it's never too late. I mean, these are people that we very much cherish and have built a society that we, that we, that we, that we treasure. I mean, they're parents and grandparents, and these are lives that are absolutely worth saving. Quebec, very quickly, just in a month, very over the summer, hired like all these PSWs, yeah. uh, 10,000 PSWs. So it can be done if our government uses all their powers and resources to hire trained staff. And I absolutely agree with Dr. Stamatopoulos. This starts with addressing the staffing crisis. It starts by ensuring that there's proper accountability in these nursing homes, especially for making sure that basic care needs are met. People are getting food and water on time, medication, other aspects of medical monitoring. They're not just isolated in the rooms with no human contact yep. and, of course, infection control. And I would, I would also say that I, I think another theme of what we're both talking about is that the threshold for intervention has to be very low in these yep. homes. I mean, COVID-19, I mean, you were speaking about UHN. I've led my hospital's rapid response teams into long-term care, and I'm still involved in some of these crisis responses. And COVID-19 is a disease which can which can kill people in hours, uh, especially frail seniors in long-term care. So it's very important that all those infection control things, you know, like those errors, I mean, it's, I, I just can't even believe that they're still happening at this point during the pandemic, where at Roberta Place, we heard that a COVID-positive patient was cohorted with a COVID-negative patient. And that was in the inspection report, like, a few weeks ago. I know, I know. It's, 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 uh, it's devastating. Now, I, I, we don't have uh, very much time left. You're also calling for an end to for-profit long-term care homes. Obviously, that's a, a longer-term ask. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's necessary. Well, there are a lot of people who say that, uh, and there are a lot of people who have some other ideas about hybrid models or whatnot. Um, But uh, right now, uh, Dr. Arya, you've characterized the, I mean, did the province do anything right? Well, it's, 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 it's hard to feel hopeful, but, um, you know, and, and I think overall we have one of the worst uh, responses when it's come to long-term, you know, like when it comes to long-term care. I mean, one clear example of that is that the, you know, the own, like their own modeling numbers, which came out, I believe, a couple of weeks ago showed that the death toll from COVID-19 in long-term care in the second wave is actually going to be worse than the first wave. Yep. Um, one thing where they could have done better, absolutely, was the vaccine rollout. And although I'm glad to see that the province has moved up 
the deadline. I mean, before they were actually talking mid-April, which made no sense at all. And then there was an outcry and then it moved to the middle of February. And now it's February 5th. I mean, that is a bit of a positive move. But even there, if we look at that, we had vaccines to, you know, get in the arms of all long-term care residents who wanted to be vaccinated by the third week of December. So that sluggish and very slow rollout will, I mean, undoubtedly has cost lives. But, uh, you know, what I'm hopeful for, and I'm sure my colleague, Dr. Stamatopoulos, is hopeful for that. I mean, COVID-19 has really showed us that the long-term care system is broken and there needs to be a complete overhaul of the system. Uh, and, you know, essential to that is that we have to address the critical issue of private for-profit care and make long-term care public. Interesting. You know, with the rollout yesterday, I was talking to Doris Greenspoon, who's the head of the Registered Nurses Association, and she said, you have to take the vaccine rollout out of the hands of the hospital and put it into public public health. Do you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. I've talked about that in interviews the day it was released by the plan by General Hillio. I said, what is going on here? You are missing a vital opportunity to include the people who do this vaccination every year successfully. Why did you not task public health with this is a ridiculous failure by this government. Uh-huh. Um, Dr. Arya, uh, you know, the, there's been a lot of criticism of that rollout in long-term care and the pivot to the workers instead of the actual residents. Um, but once the vaccine is distributed by next week, we are told, um, are we going to see a drop in, in this horrible rate of death? Well, I'm very hopeful that that will be the case. I mean, we're starting to see uh, some of the COVID-19 daily case counts uh, come down in the community. But keep in mind, I mean, our long-term care system, as we've outlined in our open letter for Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care, is in crisis. And it's possible that in the next two weeks, that's when the death toll from in the second wave will actually surpass the first wave. I mean, we had, I believe, over 30 deaths uh, in in the last 24 hours that were reported in long-term care alone from COVID-19, which really means that there's actually more than one person dying per hour in long-term care in our province from COVID-19. So, I mean, we're still a ways away from giving everyone the second dose, and it's really two to four weeks afterwards that we might see see the full effect. So we're definitely not out, out of the woods yet. And what's more concerning, I have two other concerns, is that, well, now we have this really, you know, this variant circulating the B117 variant, which is a lot more transmissible. And many people are talking about how it could even cause a third wave of COVID-19. And, you know, to add to this, uh, you know, one of the big problems with the, with the, with the rollout, I mean, Dr. Stamatopoulos and I have been very consistent about how staffing is so critical to care for people in nursing homes, but really they've, they've done well. I mean, although it was very slow, they've done well with vaccinating the majority of residents over 90%. But staffing and how the, how that vaccine is being delivered to them is really not going well. I mean, the city of Toronto, for example, their data shows that only 43% of frontline staff working in long-term care have gotten the vaccine. Okay, we have less than a minute left. So very quick question to either one of you. Um, have you received or are you expecting any kind of response from anyone in government? We have not. Okay, that's uh, that's quick and to the point. Thank you so much, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos and Dr. Amit Arya, and uh, good luck with your campaign. Thank you very Thank much. You. Okay, uh, that is all the time we have for Fight Back for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.